One of the key policy developments of the 2020 legislative session of the Missouri General Assembly was an expansion of absentee and mail-in balloting. And Democratic State Representative Kevin Windham Jr. was a key member of a conference committee that made it happen. Wyndham joins us next on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about that piece of legislation and the prospects for Democrats in the 2020 election cycle. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision, and everybody in the room looks like you. You need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Uh, joining me via Zoom is Democratic State Representative Kevin Wyndham Jr. Um, thank you so much for returning to the show. And just remind our listeners uh, what your district entails and which uh, St. Louis County municipalities it includes. Yes. So I have uh, many municipalities. I would get in trouble if I tried to name all of them. Uh, but they are mostly in the Normandy Schools Collaborative. Uh, it ranges from the city county line. Uh, the district goes from the city county line at about Natural Bridge and Goodfellow. Uh, going east to uh, west would be uh, right at Ridner High School. The northern border is Interstate 70, and the southern border is St. Charles Rock, Rock Road, give or take. And one of the reasons that we're having you on is you are unopposed for re-election. So congratulations on making it to the Missouri House for two more years, first of all. Thank you, Jason. Um it's kind of tricky to do podcasts uh, during an election season where we have somebody on and not their opponent. So we're going to be talking a lot about elections in the second half of the show. But what I want to talk about is election administration to start off with. You were part of a conference committee that ended up coming up with an idea to expand absentee balloting in the state. And I want to give you a chance to explain how this works. Obviously, this was driven a lot by COVID-19. And it's going to have a pretty major impact, I think, on the August and November primary. So walk us through the bill that you had a pretty substantial role in. The conference committee on Senate Bill 631 is probably, not even probably, it's the most unique experience I've had in my legislative career thus far. Uh, The conference committee was scheduled to meet at around 11 p.m., Uh, the day before we adjourned for the legislative year. Uh, So it was, uh, it was, it was something. Uh, It, uh, we ended up getting in there about 11 p.m. We, we negotiated, uh, so to speak, for about four hours. uh, And we ended up adjourning at about three in the morning uh, and then came back uh, that same day. And, uh, finally passed the conference committee substitute for Senate Bill 631 uh, out of the House uh, literally within the last hour um, of of the legislative session. So um, to go into the bill a little bit, uh, the thinking behind the bill uh, is that we wanted everyone to be able to vote 
um, safely uh, and in some ways, some folks are going to be able to vote more safely than others. So um, with folks that are the most at risk of succumbing to COVID-19, um, those folks will be able to vote absentee via option seven without a notary. So those are folks who uh, have asthma, diabetes, kidney disease, uh, are over age 65, uh, and a couple of other uh, things that I, I feel like I'm missing, one being immunocompromised. Um, so those folks will be able to vote absentee option seven without having their ballot notarized. Uh, everyone who does not fall within uh, that category will have to vote in a whole new category. By the way, absentee balloting has been around for over 100 years uh, in the state of Missouri. Uh, but uh, we created a whole new option that will be used for the first time in 2020, uh, and that will be called a mail-in ballot. Uh, so a mail-in ballot is similar to an absentee ballot. However, you can only apply for a mail-in ballot uh, in person or via mail, and you can only send back uh, your mail-in ballot via mail. Uh, so it's uh, it has a little bit more restrictions on it, and you also have to get your mail-in ballot notarized. So um, that's something that Democrats fought against, um, but Republicans weren't willing to budge on that. Um, uh, so those folks will have to get their ballot notarized and will have to send it back uh, via mail, and, and that's really restrictive for folks to have to get that ballot notarized because when we're in a global pandemic and trying to avoid human contact as much as possible, uh, it, it seems more than a little bit counterproductive to have someone go to a notary public and have the notary public even be at risk of contracting COVID-19 and being a super spreader. Um, so that, that was a big hurdle, but not one we were uh, able to overcome. I did in the end end up voting for the bill uh, because I, I think that it was a compromise. Uh, we came into the into the room with uh, with photo voter ID and initiative petition reform being on uh, Senate Bill 631. And by the time we left, it was a pretty much clean uh, bill regarding COVID-19 voting. Um, so you see, if you look at the at the vote on that. You have some Democrats that voted against it. You have some Democrats that voted for it. You also have some Republicans that voted against it and some Republicans that voted for it. So uh, it was a it was a decent compromise, in my opinion. Yeah. As you kind of mentioned, even though it passed overwhelmingly out of the House and Senate, it had critics, I think, on both sides of the, the, the political fence. Let, let's start with the Democrats who didn't like the fact that the notary requirement is is there for the mail in ballot option. I guess Republicans would say you need the notary to prevent against, I guess, voter fraud. And I'm sure that you heard that from your Republican colleagues that clearly won the day with that. Right now in Missouri, we have what you call a belt and suspenders approach. So uh, I guess it's interchangeable, right? So I'll use the belt uh, as being our, um, our notary requirement. Well, we also have suspenders in that the Board of Elections checks the signature uh, of every voter. 
Now, checking the signature isn't 100% uh, accurate every time. Uh, but it's also pretty outlandish to think that someone would be able to uh, get a ballot out of your mail or first apply for your absentee ballot, right? Then get your ballot out of your mailbox and then have a signature that's close to yours. Um, so I, I think that that argument uh, is moot in my mind. Of course, it wins today. Uh, it, it's pretty hard to argue against numbers at the end of the day when Republicans have a super majority. So it's not too often that they don't win the day. But um, I, I think that we're especially solid with our belt and suspenders approach. And in times of a pandemic, sometimes we need to loosen that belt or even take off the suspenders uh, so that everyone will have access to vote without risking their health. Because uh, I take it especially serious, this COVID-19 crisis, uh, uh, whether how it's impacting the uh, the community at large, or especially how it's impacting the African-American community. Uh, so I, with the COVID-19 crisis and elections uh, kind of combining, it just, it just, it, it made me a little bit uh, disappointed that we couldn't do more for voters. Um, but I, I'm also very proud of the amount of pressure that uh, the voters put on, uh, on the majority party to even budge on, on some of the things that that the bill started off with. Now, conversely, one of notable Republican who came out against this bill was Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, and he takes issue with the fact that the mail-in ballot uh, parameters are very restrictive and are not going to be necessarily as easy to for an ordinary voter to go through with than it could be. Here's a clip now from Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. There are problems in 631 beyond the fact that they stripped out photo ID, which the people, at least 63% of the voters pushed for. Um, we have ordered almost 90 ballot boxes. Uh, we started this process, I don't know, two, maybe three weeks, three months ago, uh, trying to get election authorities to tell us they wanted one so they could have a ballot box and they could put it and then people could just drop off their absentee ballots and not have to go in to see somebody, not have to so be easier. And it's kind of COVID-19 proof. Um, in 631, as it's written, we're not going to be able to send out those ballot boxes. I'm going to have 88. If it gets signed by the governor, I'm going to have 88 ballot boxes that I got to find a place to store because I can't use them in 2020. Because an absentee ballot could go in that box, but a mail-in ballot can only return be returned by U.S. mail. So what do you make of Secretary Ashcroft's comments there? Because I've also heard from even some Democrats that the way the mail-in option is crafted is not as intuitive as it could be, and is certainly not even as intuitive as the absentee ballot part, which I think you can just request online. I'm trying not to use loaded terms here, but I just think that's really disingenuous. I think that the Secretary of State led with what he was really, uh, what really made him not support Senate Bill 631 and that it didn't have photo voter ID on it because Democrats and even uh even a Republican pushed for these uh, these boxes to be able to be put uh, to be put in communities so that folks would be able to drop their ballot off. Uh, Democrats and and a Republican pushed so that uh, so that election clerks will be able to start counting these ballots earlier. The election clerks had a whole list of proposals, and uh, you know I, I I wish that the the Secretary of State would have been more boisterous uh, in in his 
uh, in his request for all of these things that would help election clerks earlier on in the process. So this issue, though, isn't necessarily completely over because there has been a lawsuit that's been moving through the court system that could effectively allow anybody to choose option two in the absentee ballot um, if they're afraid of catching COVID or if they're confining because of COVID. And that would not require a notary. So my question is, like, how as, as somebody who voted for this bill, but clearly had some misgivings about the notary part. Are you hoping that that lawsuit succeeds and just allows anybody to just check option two and get an absentee ballot and not have to get a notary? Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, I think that I I left a little bit out of my last answer because I I didn't state the fact that if uh, the majority party specifically uh, Secretary of State Ashcroft wanted to make it easy on voters that we could have not been talking about any of this and we could just all use option two uh, via abs- uh, absentee. But uh, I absolutely hope that the, the court rules on this. But I, as a legislator, I just didn't feel comfortable leaving it up to the judiciary. And that's why I voted for, uh, for Senate Bill 631. And by the way, for our listeners, option two, which I kind of referenced euphemistically, is basically if you are ill or or have an incapacity, you check that box. And that is one of the excuses to get an absentee ballot. Uh, My only other question on this topic is, do you think that this episode may provide some momentum eventually to kind of do away with the excuse system and just allow anybody to request an absentee ballot for any reason and not have to check a box. I know that a lot of county clerks would honestly prefer that, but I know that a lot of Republicans in the legislature do not want that option, even though it's kind of been available in a number of even Republican states. What's kind of the trajectory for that particular part of this issue? You know, Another reason why I have so much respect for election authorities is because voting is so should, is and should be so easy, but it's also so complicated. So uh, when we talk about no excuse absentee, uh, that's not even really a, that's not a part of this bill. Um, the I guess mail-in balloting would be similar to no excuse absentee, uh, but this we still didn't pass no excuse absentee in this bill. So I hope that it provides momentum um, for, uh, for really, honestly, for the general public to see uh, how much more intuitive our voting laws could and should be, because I don't think that the legislature is going to get the message, even if, uh, even if it goes seamlessly uh, in November, which is, I mean, that's going to be I won't say a tall task, but I would be surprised if it goes off without a hitch, creating a brand new system uh, just a few months before folks are supposed to vote using it. But uh, I hope that it, it creates some momentum amongst the general public, because I, I think that it's like like many of of good things in Missouri and, and, and sometimes even things that I don't agree with. Uh, it's going to take the people and it's going to likely take the initiative petition process for something to happen. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Kevin Windham Jr. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Kevin Windham Jr., a Democrat from Hillsdale. I want to talk about the, the protests 
over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless other black people that have been killed by police in this country. I think that now that we're about a month out from some of the height of the protests, I think a lot of people are turning their attention from demanding change to actually following through with change. And I'm sure you know this because I think we talked about this on the previous show, but after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was a similar expectation that the legislature was going to act on police accountability measures. And I think that even the most optimistic people in Missouri would say that the state fell well short of that goal, especially compared to other states. So I want to give you a chance to talk about what you would want to see from the legislature, either in a special session or next year, on the issue of uh, overhauling how police do their jobs, and just kind of your, your feeling on whether the protests that have happened throughout the country and throughout St. Louis will bring policy change throughout the state. It hurts me that this is such a, a revolving conversation because, you know, I, I was in college when when Trayvon Martin was killed and I remember I remember my mom's voice when she called me to check on me and, and talk to me about uh, Trayvon Martin being killed. And then I was still in college when Michael Brown was killed. Uh, and I remember how I felt at that time. And now, you know, there is, it's a range of different emotions. And at one point I felt numb, uh, but now I, I almost feel hypersensitive. So I haven't watched the, the videos of Ahmaud Arbery uh, and very little of the, the video of George Floyd's killing, uh, murder. But, you know, it, 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 it takes me back to a, a place that I've been to a few times before, and I hope that there is real systemic change and that I can see that there's uh, some difference in the protests uh, this time around, uh, especially in that there are more people, uh, more diverse groups in, uh, in the traditional sense, if you will. But you know, on a, on a policy level, I think that we have a, a number of different things to talk about. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a lot to talk about. So I, I think that um, really, I hope that we can take this general push and put it into some more specific policies, um, whether we're talking about policies uh, that are specific to these killings. So uh, whether we talk about uh, no-knock warrants in the case of Breonna Taylor, uh, or whether we talk about um, our, our open carry laws uh, in Missouri uh, in relation to Amar Arbery and, and just our general socio economic sense of how we see people. Um, so uh, generally, I think that, that we have a lot to work on. I mean, the, the last thing, the latter thing is not necessarily uh, legislative, but I think that there's also a lot of different things that we can do to work towards this. So whether it's uh, whether it's supporting uh, Black history being taught in schools, or whether it's uh, supporting a, a bill that uh, Representative Green filed last year, uh, Representative Allen Green filed last year that would uh, create a Juneteenth Heritage Fund. Um, so uh, it, it's a it's a lot of different things that we can go uh, and do and work towards. And I just hope that that it becomes a priority. Um, generally, whether when we're talking about um, 
black folks and, and people of color or whether it's um, specific when we're talking about police reform. Well, I, I also want to bring this a little bit more local. Um, the recently installed St. Louis County Police Chief Mary Barton recently made comments about systemic racism in the St. Louis County Police Department that has gotten a whole lot of criticism. Here's a clip of Chief Barton's comments. No, I wouldn't call exactly what I was talking about racism. There's, there's all sorts of insensitive comments and inappropriate behavior. It doesn't have anything to do with racism. It's just inappropriate. And I think to say that there's systemic racism in the police department is overly broad and probably not accurate. Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply concerned uh, with that statement, Jason. Just that general mindset for her to even initially say that. I think that it's, it's the largest and one of the most diverse counties in, in the Missouri. Um, we, should, we should be an example of police forces, not only in Missouri, but around the country. Um, and when you even look at our diversity numbers, um, we only have 99 African-American officers out of 963 officers. Um, and only 19 of those 99 serve at a rank above police officer. Um, so sergeants, lieutenants, captains, uh, and so forth. Uh, and only three of those 19 are African-American women. Um, so I have a good friend that says North County is the uh, largest concentration of black women in the state. And if we only have three black women that, that serve above police officers, then I think that's a problem to say that systemic racism is overly broad um, and inaccurate in the police department. That, that really took me back and, and to, to my reaction. I pretty much jumped off the couch. Um, so I, I, I have, I have serious concerns, not only with that statement, but with some of, some of the, the obvious uh, transparency issues that I've seen uh, with the, the Board of Police Commissioners thus far, and, and um, pretty simple things in my opinion. So uh, on the website right now, there aren't any videos of, of board meetings uh, with the exception of listening sessions for the new chief. Uh, and there aren't any minutes since April 22nd. So basically since the, the new chief was, was hired. So I, I, I think that they should be pushing to make sure that uh, not only notices, but the board meetings are on social media and, and they should be pushing it to make sure that there's more uh, engagement and work to make sure that there's more diversity and inclusion within the department and, and externally outside of the department, um, especially when the diversity and inclusion unit it's only two people. I'm I'm very concerned about that as well. Um, to to have a, a department of, of over 900 officers, and you have a diversity and inclusion unit of two, um, and they're they're responsible for both internal diversity and inclusion and external diversity and inclusion. Um, internal surveys, external surveys. I I just want to see uh, what this this unit has been doing and, and what they plan to do, especially in these times. Uh, and off, off immediately, I'll just say that the department needs to be bigger. The, the diversity and inclusion unit needs to be uh, much more robust. Uh, how, going back to the state level, how responsive do you think the Republican majority in the House is going to be when people come back next year put forth proposals to overhaul policing or overhaul how police departments can operate. 
You know, another thing that I think has been a little bit uh, different is that I've seen more of a push from officers uh, and and different organizations pushing, saying that there should be some reforms. Um, So the Ethical Society of Police comes to mind um, and a lot of local police departments um, come to mind. So I think that hopefully, I will say I hope that if a lot of local police departments and um, police associations and organizations come out in favor of these reforms, uh, then it'll it'll create some kind of momentum. Like I I said, I'm kind of um, skeptical about cracking the the Republican supermajority, especially on issues that that seem to be uh, a little bit more partisan. But uh, like I said, I hope that a lot of these uh, local leaders come forward and, and, and change some mind, hearts and minds. Well, let's talk about the upcoming election. As I mentioned on the outset, you're you're on the ballot. You don't have an opponent. So that gives you kind of a chance to, like, look at some of the other contests that are that are going on. As somebody who lives in St. Louis County, I'd be interested to hear what your perspective is about the St. Louis County executives race for our listeners that don't know. County executive Sam Page is is running for two years of a four-year term because Steve Stenger resigned. He is facing off against three other Democrats, Jake Zimmerman, Mark Montavani, and Jamie Tolliver. Um, what's kind of your perspective of that race, and, and, and what are people in your district wanting from the next county executive? More. So I, I'm I, personally, I've been really disappointed um, with with uh with county executive page uh his response to the COVID 19 crisis um so whether it's been uh the the policies or lack thereof around face masks um or the doling out of contracts or, or supporting the the community organizations that that are on the ground i just think there's much to be desired there um but i'm i'm still neutral in the race right now i'm not quite ready to um to support anyone. Uh, I, I, I just think that uh, county voters, especially in my district, deserve more. I, I've, I've really heard a lot about, uh, about, I'll shout out an organization about Affinia not receiving uh, more support earlier on. Uh, they, they were very visible uh, in doing the work of making sure that folks were tested and uh, being safe during the COVID-19 crisis, um, especially within my district. So I, I, I'm, I'm still neutral right now. I think that, that, like I said, my district deserves more and deserves more intentionality. There, there is an African-American candidate in the race, Jamie Tolliver, but the three other candidates have substantially more money and organization than her. And the three other candidates are white males. I'm going to ask a very blunt question. Like, how do three wealthy white dudes like attract votes in predominantly African-American North St. Louis County, a part of the county, which I think will be critical toward choosing the next county executive. In my eyes, it's pretty simple. So um, I I may be a political novice, but um, uh, I think that you just put out good policy proposals, right? And and you talk to people and meet them where they are. So uh, I was very serious about my policy proposals uh, when I was running for office, and I still am. look at myself as a legislator first, uh, even more so than a, a political scientist or a politician, if you will. Uh, I, I very much take my responsibility as a lawmaker seriously. So I think that 
for the the county executives and anyone running for office is especially important uh, to say how um, what what are your policies and specifically if there's there's communities that have been uh, divested from and and disenfranchised and 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 you are are touting the racial equity lens, then you want to make sure that there's policies uh, that are going to help these communities um, get out of these these disproportionate outcomes. So I, I I've yet to see um, a, a a candidate for county executive. Uh, I don't honestly I don't know much about uh, about Miss Tolliver. Uh, but I haven't seen a serious set of policy proposals that says that that, um, that folks are specifically uh, having a racial equity lens in their policy proposals. Well, let's uh, let's go back a little bit more and, and talk about something that will be on the statewide ballot in August, and that's Medicaid expansion. Now, for listeners, this has been a policy goal for Missouri Democrats since 2005 when Matt Blunt cut Medicaid eligibility pretty substantially. Pretty much in every election I've covered in the last 14 years, that has been probably the one unifying thing that has binded together a very disparate Missouri Democratic Party. What do you think the impact of this measure being in August will be? There was some criticism of Governor Parson doing this because there was a feeling like maybe this would make it harder to pass. But the proponents of Medicaid expansion have a ton of resources and organization at their disposal, and I haven't seen any semblance of an opposition campaign yet. I'd be interested to hear like what your perspective is on that ballot measure and its prospects for passing. Yeah, I'd encourage everyone to get out and vote uh, like I always do, but especially in August. Um, but I'm not much worried about the outcome of, of the Medicaid expansion uh ballot initiative um because i think that uh, missouri voters are are going to approve it um i i even think that it it, it'll be um overwhelming i think it'll be a mandate um but i think it just makes common sense uh to go ahead and approve medicaid expansion i don't have the numbers in front of me but we've been missing out on a lot of, of federal dollars uh by not expanding medicaid and um we're most importantly, we're we're missing out on the opportunities to give a lot of Missourians a better quality of life. So I'm I'm not much worried about uh, if Medicaid expansion will pass, and I'm more so worried about, or I think that the the uh, the reason that it was moved was to save a lot of Republicans in November. Quite honestly, do you have any concerns that after it passes in August, the legislature may come back in September or so? put something else on the ballot to for like a work requirement or, or something like that, that would m- kind of blunt the impact of Medicaid expansion? Or is it, I don't even know if that would be possible at this point because it may be way past the deadline to actually put anything on a ballot. But I know that that was something that was brought up during session. Do you think that there's any serious momentum of, of getting that done this year? You know, honestly, not this year, uh, in my opinion. Um, and, and honestly, like you said, I don't think that, that 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 wouldn't be possible to put it on the even put it on the ballot this year, uh, but the the Missouri Republican Party never ceases to amaze me. Quite honestly, in their uh, intention to overturn the will of the voters, I mean, um, I'm not the biggest proponent of clean Missouri, or not even a proponent at all. 
um, but we uh, to talk about uh, measures that'll be on the ballot uh, in November. A, a, a measure to pretty well undo clean Missouri is going to be on the ballot. So um, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if we see something next year. Well, let's, my, my final line of questioning is about the general election, and it, it, there's going to be more than just clean Missouri on the ballot. There's also going to be races for governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, treasurer, as well as a host of the state legislative races and also congressional contests, too. Um, I've said for many years, a lot of these contests depend on what the national environment is. I know I've seen polls saying that Biden is up 14 points nationally. I'm frankly very skeptical that those numbers are going to hold. I think they're going to tighten. It is only June after all. But like, what are kind of your expectations for Missouri Democrats in general for all those contests? And what what do you think uh, it's going to take to get the best case scenario for the party? You know, I, it's it's obviously interesting or unique uh, campaigning times, um, and I, I do think that those uh, those numbers will tighten. I, I don't think that uh, that Vice President Biden will will win by fourteen points. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that in order to, to run our best campaign, I think that we have some, some good candidates and I think that they are working very hard to reach voters, even in these, uh, like I said, unique times. So I think it's really just going to take touching voters and, and saying what we would do differently, because I think that voters are tired of just having an, an alternative, uh, voters want, a superior alternative. And I think that uh, here lately, uh, Missouri Democrats have been showing that on, on a, a statewide and local level. And I think that uh, Vice President Biden has really been showing that uh, on a national level. Now, I, I think a lot of people know that I'm not the, the biggest fan of Vice President Biden, uh, but I think that he does, uh, he does present a superior alternative. Uh, and I think that's, a, that's an easy statement for me to make uh, to President Trump. Well, Representative, thank you very much for joining with us on Politically Speaking. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. I have two questions for you. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? And what would you want your outro music to be? So um, last time I was unprepared for the Twitter uh, handle. This time I'm prepared. It's at kwindom 85 and the song I'm a little bit unprepared for, um, but off the top of my head, I will go with uh, Ghetto Superstar. All right. Well, until next time, so long. Oh, stars, man, stars, beautiful tonight. Look at yeah.